0: A thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of peace, justice, and, the Lord, and of the War of the dark night Welcome back to a People's History of the Old Republic. Episode six point three. We live in a society. It sounds even dumber when you when you actually say it instead of just typing <laughs> it. <laughs> t- Wow. All right. I mean there's a reason it's named that, but Uh it's it might not justify like how dumb that sounded. No,
1: it's great. Anyway,
0: anyway, last time we helped out around Citadel Station, saved the authorians are running the restoration project, and made it all to made it all the way to the Hidden Jedi Academy with our old buddy Val Durr. In this episode, we have a debate that doubles as a boss fight, meet Darth Nihilus, and get yelled at by Kreia for giving a beggar some change on nor Shaddaa. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, there's always a bit of truth in legends. Uh, real quick, podcast business, um, two, two episodes in a row, that's a new record, no, not necessarily the good kind of record. Anyway, a couple of quick things before we get going. First, uh, we've added some outro music at the end of the episodes, so don't be alarmed if you hear it. No one listens to the plugs anyway, but it's there. Second, a few of our loyal listeners have asked if the show is ever going to do a Patreon or something like that. The answer is no, uh, probably, but... Almost certainly no. Um, We don't want to put certain pieces of the timeline behind a paywall, but we do appreciate the interest, so we've created a Cash App account for the show if you'd like to donate to the world's only Old Republic specific Star Wars podcast that we know of. Um, No obligations, of course, and it's very flattering that uh, some of you like the show enough to uh, offer up your hard earned credits. Uh, We'll put a link. Um, on the SoundCloud page or you can find it by searching for Luke is amazing on cash app. Uh, Yes, that is my name, but I'm not hoarding any of it. It's just easier to do this than setting up an entirely new one. Uh, Also, if you wanted to watch me play Jedi Fallen Order and I'm not sure why you would, uh, I apologize that I haven't streamed much on Twitch. Strangely, real life keeps getting in the way of my ability to play video games and likely will for the foreseeable future.
1: It's all okay. I'm sure there will be plenty of plays in the future, and uh, we appreciate anything thrown into the cash app. We will not blow it all on (laughs) Pazak. So, with the business out of the way, let us continue our narrative. Knights of the Old Republic 2, Part 3, Hidden Jedi Academy and Nar Shaddaa. On a snow-covered, frost-bitten plateau in one of the few parts of Telos IV that wasn't turned into a wasteland, the Jedi Exile finds a secret Jedi Academy, with no students, run by her art nemesis. The plateau is surrounded by four tall columns, making it look like the Jedi High Temple on Coruscant. Earlier, Mitra Sur- Surik... Kraya, Aton Rand, and Baudur crash-landed on the plateau after their shuttle was shot down by HK-50 assassination droids. All four companions were thrown from the shuttle on impact, with Baudur being knocked unconscious for hours, indicating that the Republic needs seatbelt laws. Somewhere in that sequence, right? You First you ban slavery, and then you get seatbelts. Both of these things are Republic needs. Um, the HK-50 droids were destroyed quickly enough and the companions were allowed inside the academy. The group recovered the second part required to bring HK-47 back online. We probably got the first from the HK-50 at the Paragus mining facility. The companions had traveled to the northern polar regions of Telos four because that's pretty much the only place on the planet where their stolen freighter, the Ebon Hawk, could land without having acid eat through it. We pick the story up as the exile and her companions enter the academy, led by six nearly identical women with hair as white as the driven snow, known as the Handmaidens. As soon as we're in from the cold, the Handmaiden sisters make us give up our weapons. Kara, Atom, and an unconscious Baudur are locked in force cages in a makeshift break, while Mitra Surik is taken to meet the leader of the academy, Jedi Master Atris. However, before Atris and the Exile have a 20-minute shouting match about their past, we get a cutscene. Krya and Aten are trying to figure out the nature of the facility, since it's obviously not a school. Krya seems to sense something and knows that Atris is the headmistress of the Academy before Surak finds out, so she's up to her old tricks already. Krya then noticed that Jedi make Aten, ran- Aten extremely uncomfortable and use the Force to invade his mind and find his secret— It was more difficult than Crya thought, as Athan is very good at hiding his thoughts from Force users. She calls Rand a murderer, and she says she will keep his secret so long as he promises to
0: protect the Exile on their journey. Character Profile Jedi Master Atrus What is there to say about Atrus other than she sucks? Alright, fine. We'll give you some more context, but it ain't great. Atris was born in an unknown year before 4000 BBY on an unknown world. A female human who had snow who had snow white hair all her life, Atris was always strong in the Force and she soon began a meteoric rise through the Jedi ranks. In the aftermath of the Great Sith War, Atris argued that the Jedi caused themselves more problems because they lacked a centralized structure, standardized training, and more rigid adherence to the Jedi code. She openly decried the practice of training older Padawans and masters, having more, more than one apprentice at a time, a common practice at that time. Atris also despised the practice of Jedi falling in love and began to preach against such attachment. Fortunately for Atris, the Jedi High Council was becoming more conservative following Exar Kun's war, and Atris eventually joined the Jedi High Council on Coruscant after attaining the rank of Master sometime before 3964. We cross paths with Atris in her narrative uh, during the KOTOR comics, when she sat in judgment on the High Council over the Jedi, who would later become Revan, and the first watch circle of Terrace. Atrus argued forcibly against involvement in the Mandalorian Wars, believing that all who eventually followed Revan to war had fallen to the dark side. Uh, Atris was also harsh of Revan's master, Kreia, and she was later exiled from the Order after Revan went to war. When the Mandalorian Wars ended above Malachor V, Atris was one of the masters who presided over the trial of Mitra Surik in 3959. Atris believed that Surik... Sh- that Cirrick Sh- should have been executed for her crimes and that exile was far too light of a sentence. For years, Atris had looked up to Mitra Surik as a hero, and it's implied she almost followed Cirrick to fight the Mandalorians. Atris ha- hated how sure Cirrick was of herself during the trial. Her certainty unnerved Atris, who began to doubt her own positions, though she silenced that doubt. After Surik's trial, Atris removed her hero's old lightsaber and kept it as a memento. In
1: 3954, Atris had a run-in with Revan before he left the galaxy. He had come to the High Temple on Coruscant to search the archives for any reference of Mitra Surik, but found that the archives were incomplete. Surik's name and all information had been erased, save for one document, an official report on the Battle of Malachor V, written by Atris. The report claimed that both Revan and Surik knew what the effects of the mass Shadow generator's activation would be, and that Revan had already fallen to the dark side by then. Atris found Re- Revan in the archives and mocked him for his inability to recover his memories, and then was incensed when she found out that Revan had lost his memories from Malachor V. Atris told Revan of Surix, exile and ordered him to leave after getting increasingly angry at Revan's refusal to give in to her taunting. As he left, Revan warned Atris that Jedi were supposed to be mindful of their emotions, further enraging the white-haired Jedi Master. Two years later, Atris would make her biggest mistake. In 3952, Atris called for a conclave on the Miraluka colony world of Qatar to determine how best to respond to the Sith threat. Many Jedi showed up to debate the question, but they had been used as bait and betrayed. Atris intended the conclave as a trap for the Sith, and so she leaked the location to the Sith through back channels. Atris wasn't on Qatar, but the rest of the Jedi Order was, and they died when Darth Nihilus showed up and ate an entire planet. Atris had underestimated the power of the Sith, a mistake she and the Jedi Order would repeat in the future. After spreading rumors that she had been on Qatar, Atris went into hiding like the rest of the Jedi, taking the secret academy at Telos. She intended to rebuild the Order, but instead began to fall to the dark side after studying the Sith holocons that had been relocated to Telos for from Dantooine in 3956. Atris underestimated the Sith yet again, though this isn't known until the end of KOTOR 2.
0: Now you might be thinking to yourself, Atris isn't that bad. Why in the world does Luke hate Atris so much? Well, the answer is simple. She has zero redeeming qualities. Every other Jedi Master that I, that I can think of uh, has done some measure of good that we know of. Uh, you're thinking, what about Vruk Lamar? Surely he's worse than Atrus. And he's a hard ass, and he's definitely going to get his by the end of this game. But even he led the Jedi into battle against a Covenant coup in 3963. He was the first through the gates, too, a noble and selfless gesture of leadership. And you know, it has to be something if I'm saying something nice about Vruk Lamar. Hell, the only Jedi who is definitively responsible for more Jedi deaths than Atris is Anakin Skywalker. Uh, Order 66 wiped out all but 2% of the Jedi alive, uh, give or take. While the eating of Qatar wiped out all but 10%, about 10%. Admittedly, those numbers are back of the napkin math, but it's never good to be compared to Anakin Skywalker when you're talking about purging the Jedi, now is it? While we've been piling on Atrus... While we've been piling on, Atris is interesting for reasons that have nothing to do with her shittiness. She was originally intended to be a much more central figure in the story, even though her role was drastically reduced due to deadlines. Most of the promotional art and even the game's box art depict Atrus as the embodiment of the light, dueling Darth Nihilus, the embodiment of the dark. It's strange that Atrus was... Uh, Excuse me. It's strange that Atrus would be chosen to represent the light Since she falls to the dark side during the game Originally Atrus was supposed to join the Exiles party And then betray them in some way Later wearing all black instead of her trademark all white This re- was removed at the last moment Because it seemed to test poorly with playtesters In one cut ending Sarek would redeem Kreia While Atrus took up the title Darth Treia there is a lot of indication that Atrus uh, was actually bestowed the title of Darth Traya by Kreia in the game, though we'll talk about that more when we return to Telos 4. Finally, Atrus is an anagram of both the planet Terrace from Knights of the Old Republic and Trias, a character who plays a similar role to Atrus in another Obsidian game, Planetscape Torment. Chris, Aval- Chris Avalon was the lead designer on that game as well. I've never played that game, but, you know, that's, that's, what, the, that's what the internet tells me.
1: So.
0: Huh. Yeah, that game shows up as one of the, like, early, but games are really
1: art, and, it, like, you can very much feel the technological limitations in the game. <laughs> um, But it does, like, what if it did trippy things and didn't have to be super coherent? Um, right. <laughs> um, so, character profile, Brianna the Handmaiden. If you played KOTOR 2 as a female exile, you know that the Handmaiden does not join on Killer 4. That spot is filled later on Dantooine, so it might seem strange we're talking about Brianna so much when we have a female exile. but you'll recall from previous episodes that the character was said to also accompany Sirik by a 2008 set of Wizards of the Coast miniature action figures. To be honest, we're not sure that minifigs are a solid primary source, but this seems to be the consensus, so who are we to argue? Brianna was born in 3976, the youngest of the Akani general Usanus' six daughters. However, Brianna had a different mother than her five half-sisters, a former Jedi master named RK. As the Jedi were becoming more conservative in the wake of the Great Sith War, having children was increasingly forbidden and K. was able to keep her daughter a secret for more than a decade, but once the truth was revealed, she was exiled from the Jedi Order. Instead of traveling to the Outer Rim like Mitra Sirk did later, K. followed Revan into the Mandalorian Wars and is presumed to have died at Malachor V in 3960. Despite being charged with child-rearing in a Kani society, General Usanis followed his love into the war, but... When she died, he became a broken man and left fighting. Eushanis never spoke of Kay because it pained him too much, and as a result, Brianna had no memory of her mother. When Darth Revan returned to prosecute the Jedi Civil War in thirty nine fifty nine, he targeted senators from many sectors in an attempt to destabilize the Republic. One of these assassinations was the Akani Senator and Usanis investigated the circumstances, eventually finding that the murder was ordered by his former ally. Based on iconic customs of chivalry and honor, Usannis challenged the Dark Lord of the Sith to a duel and was slain, orphaning Brianna and her five half-sisters. At some point after this, all six would come to serve Jedi Master Actress and eventually take up residence in the hidden Jedi Academy on Telos IV. Just like her sisters, Brianna had... Naturally white hair, but she wore her hair in two braids that fell down over her ears near her shoulders.
0: While Atris knew of Brianna's parentage and Force sensitivity, she never attempted to teach her the ways of the Force or tell the young woman about her dormant powers. Instead, following the destruction of Katar, Atris wanted to rebuild the Order, using the Handmaidens as a sort of internal guard against Jedi falling to the dark side. Atrus made the handmaiden sisters take an oath to never train in the ways of the force or seek instruction from a Jedi other than Atrus. She intended to have the sisters work as a sort of special task force that would incapacitate or possibly kill Jedi suspected of falling. To this end, the sisters were trained to resist mental persuasion through the Force. Despite being a more than capable fighter, Brianna was considered the last handmaiden, meaning she was considered the worst of the six sisters. Part of this is because Itchani society holds adultery as a grievous crime, and they also believe that the shame of any betrayal is passed genetically. The Itchani also shamed Usanis for losing a duel to Darth Revan, but that seems a bit much. This means from birth, Brianna has been was seen as a bastard and has been treated as such by all, including her own sisters. The shame of all this caused Brianna to withdraw and give up her own name, taking the title of last handmaiden and giving her severe confidence issues. Ichani genetics also mean that children look, like, look nearly identical to the parent of their same gender, meaning that the five sisters resembled their mother, while Brianna looked like Aaron Kay. This isn't clear in the game because all of Atrus's handmaidens have the same character design, but we'll chalk that up to the limitations of the game's graphics. In the game, Brianna tells the exile that she is proud of her mother and a number of keepsakes that want, and has a number of keeps, keepsakes that once belonged to Kray. Belong K. She also wields her father's adjustable bow staff, though the length of the weapon is sort of comical and fully extended, as it's nearly twice as tall as Brianna.
1: There isn't much to do in the hidden Jedi Academy, and you usually do this part. A few cutscenes, a war of words, recovering T3 from the clutches of the handmaidens, and the handmaiden sparring ring. We talk about the sparring ring in greater detail, but why? Once Kreia is done messing with Atten's head, she causes him to fall unconscious using the Force and then begins to meditate, so that she can focus on the showdown that's about to take place in the faux Jedi Council Room of the secret academy. <coughs> The top level of the academy contains a circular room with twelve chairs surrounding a monolithic gray center stone. It's meant to resemble the Jedi Council chambers of the Jedi High Temple. The room is connected by a long walkway above a deep chasm that connects to Atris's meditation chamber. We can't see the room now, but we will get a first-hand look when we return to Telos Four. This time, however, Demetriosurik and Atris will meet in the dollar store. Jedi Council Chambers. Atris wears Jedi robes that look a lot like Jocasta News robes in Attack of the Clones, but those that uh, Atris wears are white. Oh, it's a nice little callback from one Jedi chronicler to another. Atris carries a lightsaber in her right hand as she descends the walkway to meet the Exile. This is the last stop on Tilo's floor. After this, we pick up T3 and the rest of the companions and finally leave this blasted second tutorial. We recall that when Revan and his companions stole the Hawk and fled Terrace, we first had to fight through the Sith base and then the exchange base. <laughs> Terrace was non-stop action to, the flee the, to flee the destruction of a planet. Telos IV, on the other hand, made the main event and the boss fight a heated exchange between two Jedi who hate each other. It's refreshing to see a stage or map end without a boss fight. That's a leap of faith that very few games would take, but... KOTOR 2 and its writers were undaunted and the set piece comes off wonderfully. Um, The debate mostly centers around Jedi involvement in the Mandalorian Wars and goes over many details we've discussed, but this scene was where we actually started to learn all those nitty-gritty details um, back in 2004. Now that we've hyped it enough, let's see if we can do it some justice.
0: If KOTOR 2 is a three-act play, then the War of words between Atris and Surik is the climactic scene of Act 1. Atris tries to begin the banter, but Surik first wants to know that her friends are safe. Atris is taken aback by the comment, as she still believes that Surik was lost to the dark side, and concern for one's friends and acquaintances is not a Sith trait. Seric is assured that her friends are safe, but the conversation moves in a hostile tone real fast. When Atrus, with Atrus putting the exile on defensive with so many questions, uh, Atrus asks the exile if she's prepared to admit her crimes and that the Jedi Council was right to cast her out. But Mitra Seric isn't here to grovel, especially not to a hypocrite like Atrus. Even after all these years, all the terribly short-sighted decisions she's made, and all the Jedi she got killed, Atris has never stopped to examine her own beliefs and assumptions. She believes the Jedi and Republic were right to wait. The Mandalorian Wars out, even after the Mandos brutally subjugated and strip-mined the Outer Rim for 12 fucking years. The Jedi didn't even move to help in 3964 when the Mandalorians invaded the Republic and war was declared. As far as we can tell, that's the first and only time the Galactic Republic went to war without the backing of the Jedi. Hell, all the Masters that Surik meets seem to have the same issue as Atrus. They lack, they lack the desire and capacity for introspection, and what's worse, they're arrogant about it. The exile points out that Atrus wanted to execute her for her crimes, but Atrus doesn't even notice her deeper hypocrisy. Instead, she ignited the lightsaber she held, and it shows a beautiful silver blade that gently hums. Sarek recognized that lightsaber because she built it. It was the one she stabbed into the center stone in 3959 after her trial. Atrus kept it the whole time as a memento of Sarek's arrogance and insults to the order which is the most pot-calling-the-kettle-black thing ever uttered. By now, Atris is shouting, and Mitra Sirik is presumably responding in kind, even though her dialogue isn't spoken. Atris barks that
1: Surik met Mandalorian aggression with her own aggression, which ignores the Jedi code. The exile retorted that she went to war to protect innocent people from slaughter while the council met aggression with outright dereliction of duty. Serec says that's a choice she will always make, and this is where she turns the tables on Atris. It's time to read her the riot act in a fiery denunciation of not only Atris, but of the entire Jedi Council for decades of failure. A recurring theme in the game is that the Jedi have failed spectacularly, but they never learn from it they passed on what they had learned but only about strength and mastery of the force they never taught their students the lessons that come from folly weakness and failure their failures compounded and multiplied to the generations that followed they never learned the lessons of the Last jedi that are obviously prevalent in kotor 2 they never learned that quote the greatest teacher failure is Quote, Sirik knew the Jedi Code teaches that they should abhor war and needless violence, but what good is a code if you ignore some tenets to suit your whims? The Jedi Council preached peace and caution to the detriment of trillions of beings, and letting the helpless suffer certainly violates the Jedi Code. And the most damning part is that they had the power, both individually and institutionally, to effect change and they refused. In the thirty nine sixties and seventies, the Jedi Council held sway over hundreds, maybe even more than a thousand, extrajudicial warrior monks with superpowers, but they sat on their hands. The arrogance of holding on to those convictions in 3951 when every decision you've made since 3976 has been wrong is galling. The Council weren't right, and they violated the Jedi Code as much, if not more so, than Revan. Meetra Surik makes this plain when she points out that Atris wished to execute her instead of exile. If there's anything we remember from KOTOR 1, it's that the Jedi don't execute their prisoners. We'll talk in greater depth about the connections between The Last Jedi and KOTOR 2 later.
0: This debate also gets at the heart of one of the deeper questions within the Star Wars universe. Simply put, can the Jedi truly follow their own code? This isn't some new concept introduced by the prequel trilogy or this game either. In many ways, the descriptions of the Jedi Order made by Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda in A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back, respectively, are incompatible. Kenobi describes a defensive police force or a sort of army that actively seeks out threats and protects the Republic from harm, much like the path that Revan followed at least initially. Remember, whatever Revan became later, his motives for entering the Mandalorian Wars were pure, so far as we know. Conversely, Yoda describes a group of passive, contemplative warrior monks who only use violence when it is absolutely necessary. And then he tells Luke to kill his dad, so what are you going to do? This mirrors the attempts by Atris and the Jedi Council to remain neutral in the Mandalorian Wars, though Yoda would almost certainly have approved of the defense of innocents in danger. Uh, that digression notwithstanding, the XL says that they weren't guaranteed of success, but a lack of guarantee isn't a reason to let people die. Indeed, if not for Revan, Malik and Sirik's timely intervention at the Battle of Duro in 3962, the Mandalorians would likely rule the galaxy. Misha goads Atrus, saying that anyone who stepped out of the archives would have seen the threat causing Atrus to rage that Malachor V should have been the XL's grave. Finally, Surik demands the Ebon Hawk back. Atris accuses her of causing the destruction of Pragus, which the exile truthfully denies. Just, just like with Lieutenant Grin, Atris talks about a lack of fuel leading to the failure of the Telos restoration project, which Suric avows to fix. Suric says that the Sith destroyed the planet and station while pursuing her as they believe her to be the last Jedi. Atris scoffs, believing herself to be the last Jedi, but Mitra Surik is full of surprises and offers to help Atris defeat the Sith. Atris admits she could use the help and tells Sarek about, about other Jedi in the galaxy who can also help. Finally, Atris and Sarek agree to gather allies and meet on Dantooine at the destroyed Jedi enclave. Now that we told that jerk Atris off and have a vague plan of attack, it's time to finally mercifully leave Telos Four.
1: After we get T3 and the Companions, the Iban Hawk lifts off and its time for three different cutscenes before Nar Shada. The first shows some of the handmaidens telling Atris that Brianna is missing, though she's already aware. There's a piece of cut content that doesn't even appear in the restored content mod that would have shown a conversation between Atris and Brianna. Atris tells the last handmaiden to follow the exile because she's dangerous. This is also where we find that found out that Atrus orchestrated Circe's return aboard the Harbinger, though it's referenced later in the game, too. Obviously, Brianna has stowed away, and since she apparently flew with Mitra Surik, we will treat it like she did and note their interactions, though without the romance angle that a male exile gets. Considering the implied romantic interest that Atrus had for a male exile, it's got to hurt even more if he romances Brianna. The second cutscene sees the companions gathered in the Ebon Hawk to discuss their next steps. Atten suggests they get lost in the galaxy with a wonderful idiom, quote, burn sky until we see lines, end quote. T3, however, has other ideas. After one of the handmaidens stole the Ebon Hawk while we were incarcerated on Citadel Station, they discovered T3 and picked the astromech apart for information on the Exile. Despite downloading T3's memory banks, the handmaidens found little useful info and unknowingly opened their systems to attack. T3 noticed the connection to download his memory banks was a two-way street, and he was able to download a hollow recording of Meet trial and a list of locations of the other four Jedi Masters. T3-M4, you magnificent bastard, you sneaky little droid. Thank you. T3 rolls the footage... And we are taken back to Coruscant in 3959. We see the Jedi High Council chambers with 12 chairs arranged around a gray center stone, just like Antilo's 4, but with but only five masters are present. Seated from left to right, we see Jedi Masters Kavar, Lona Vash, Vruk Lamar, Zez Kael, and Atris. The exile arrives and the trial convenes, though it's purely a formality. Her fate had already been decided and no evidence presented would change that, though there is a level of disagreement as both Master Vash and Master Eller are somewhat sympathetic to the Exile.
0: The player controls the Exile's responses here, so it's more of a dialogue, but that's neither here nor there, because the big revelations come after the trial ends. Vrug begins, asking the Exile if she knows why she has been summoned before the Council. Surik, however, makes it clear she came on her own and not because of the Council's authority. Council members begin throwing accusations left and right. Surik fell to the dark side. Revan is her new master. She's a warmonger who only went into battle to sate her bloodlust. Mitra Surik claims that the Jedi Council had no idea what happened in the war or at Malachor 5 because they sat on their hands in their literal ivory tower. In due time, Kreia will revisit this theme. Finally, Lana Vash pronounces Surik's exile, and Vruk demands she return her lightsaber as it is a Jedi symbol. Surik ignited her silver shimmering blade and impaled the center stone, leaving the lightsaber and the Jedi behind without saying a word. If that all seems really short, that's because it was. Uh, the outcome was a foregone conclusion, but Zurich was never supposed to learn that the, of the council deliberations that followed. At the time of the trial, Mitra Sirk believed the Council cut her off from the Force. If you're wondering how Sirk severed her connection to the Force at the Battle of Malachor V in 3960, but didn't notice the loss of the Force until the trial in 3959, we have no idea. It's never explained, and the timeline presents questions we simply don't have answers for, and likely never will. Finally, we get to the cutscene, and Sirk begins to realize she's been deceived. In the cutscene after Circ's departure, Eskael is the closest to realizing the truth, saying, quote, I fear it is our teachings that may have led Revan to choose the path he did. Atris objects that Revan and Zurich are to blame, but is chastised by Master Vash, who says that council must take responsibility, not assign blame. Maybe she should have said that during the trial. Uh, Atreus says that Malachor V should have been Serec's grave and that she already seems like a dead spot in the Force. The shot begins to pan out as Kavar cryptically complains that they should have told Serec the truth because she could die without ever knowing the real reason she was cast out of the Order. In the end, that is a risk the Council was willing to take. As the flashback ends, T3
1: displays another file he stole on his hacking spree, listing the locations of each Jedi Master. Vruk Lamar on Dantooine, Zaz Kael on Nar Shaddaa, Kevar on Lo'na Vash on Korriban. Shurik now has a plan. Visit these four worlds, convince the Jedi Masters to convene on Dantooine, find out what all that cryptic shit after the trial was about, save the Republic, and defeat the Sith threat. Meet your notes that she knows all the Jedi shown in the video, a fact that Crya says isn't a coincidence and likely means they are walking into a trap of some kind. Surik understands the danger, but says there's no choice but to spring the trap. Moments later, Brianna bursts in, claiming that the files belong to Atris and this constitutes theft, which might hold more weight if we cared what Atrus thought, or if Brianna wasn't the stowaway. But we do need all the help we can get, so another force sensitive to train won't hurt, but Brianna does get stuck in the cargo hold. Now that the second cutscene ends, we get control of Shirk and head to the cockpit to fly to one of the four worlds mentioned. Much like KOTOR 1, the sequel also has a canonical order of planets, but we can't seem to find a reason why this order is used, but we'll go with it in the absence of evidence to the contrary. From here, the Iban Hawk will first travel to the Smuggler's Moon, Nar Shaddai, then to Onderon and its moon, Duxun, next to Dantooine, and then we have to make a few return trips to finish some side quests before traveling to the final planet. We will then return to Duxun and Onderon to resolve the Onderon Civil War before going back to Nar Shaddaa to ensure that Citadel Station has a new fuel source. With Telos IV and Onderon stabilized, the Jedi Exile will finally travel to Korriban. This is also where we will talk about M478, the droid planet that was cut. After Korriban, the path is set as we return to Dantooine for one final meeting with the Jedi Council. Then there's a return to Telo's four to stop Darth Nihilus from feeding on the planet like he did with Katara. After that, all that's left is to go to Malachor Five, confront their demons,
0: and get some closure. Ah, uh, but before the Ebon docks on Nar Shaddaa, we get a third and final cutscene. In familiar Star Wars fashion, we see the shot, we see a shot of the underside of a large ship, but something's off. The ship has turbo laser scoring all over, and there's a giant hole in the bottom. As it comes into view, we see whole chunks of the hull are missing. Sparks fly from the ship, and it's clear this thing shouldn't be spaceworthy. Despite that fact, this ship called the Ravager is clearly being piloted piloted through space somehow within we see a woman wearing dark red robes sitting in a circular meditation chamber surrounded by a number of pillars engraved with sith writing and runes the writing on the pillars grows a glows a faint red and there's a red mist or flo- or fog on the floor the woman is meditating and has a cowl pulled over her eyes she's a Miraluca Named Visus Mar, and that can only mean one thing It's finally time to meet Darth Nihilus Mar seems to sense something and ceases her meditation to discuss it with her master on the bridge Nihilus stands on the bridge, looking out the viewport, his back turned to his apprentice Nihilus wears all black robes, save for a white mask Though there doesn't appear to be a face beneath the mask, just swirling darkness Nihilus speaks in an unintelligible language that isn't subtitled. The only alien tongue in the game, the only alien tongue with no translation in the game. Mar approaches, telling her master she felt a disturbance in the Force and kneeling in supplication. Visas says the disturbance was difficult to track and begins to ask if it's a threat, but But Nihilus turns around and Force chokes his apprentice. After a brief moment, the Master frees the Apprentice. Coughing from the choke, Mar begs for death, but Nihilus appears to ask if she can trace the faint echo of the forest to its source. Visus says she can, and goes off to do just that, which means Mitra and her companions will be seeing Visus Mar soon. Finally, after all that, it's time to land on Nar Shaddha. Hold on, Aten has to talk about how seedy the place is and tell us we're docking in the refugee sector. Just kidding. Time for more profiles.
1: Character profile. Darth Nihilus. Nihilus? Nihilus. Um, yep, it's not Nihilus. What a guy. Time to introduce you to a character that has almost zero backstory no more discernible dialogue, probably doesn't even have a physical body, and is still cooler than 99% of the Sith ever by virtue of a cool mask mystery, and the fact that he could eat planets. Let's talk about the mask first, because you might not know, and that's a shame. It's the size of a normal human face that covers the forehead and cheeks. The mask was actually two pieces connected with an ornate metal piece running upward from the nose to the forehead. The two pieces that protected the face were both stark white with red vertical lines painted above the eye holes. Nihilus's overall design was initially intentionally based on the look of the character. No face um, from Hayao uh, Miyazaki's uh, classic film Spirited Away. Though his name appears on screen while fighting, it, when fighting him, uh, Darth Nihilus' name is not actually spoken in the game, including in the restored content mod. While it is implied, when Nihilus was originally a human and likely a Jedi, nothing was said about his physical appearance. Most likely because he no longer has a physical body by the time of KOTOR II. Nihilus' body is actually the subject of some controversy within the legend's continuity. More sources state that Nihilus was able to encase his spirit within his armor due to heavy deterioration of his physical body and his continued use of the Dark Side. However, one source, the complete Star Wars encyclopedia, states that his body was destroyed when the Ravager was destroyed. This is likely a typo or misprint because there was nothing left of his body after his death and Dark Side burst in game. Miles is said to have encased his spear within his armor and mask in a few reference books, but is also directly referenced by Darth Krayt during the Legacy comic series, which takes place in 137 after the Battle of Yavin. After his death, Nihilus's mask and holocron were each the subject of a number of adventures in the manner of the Dark Lord's death, was the subject of much controversy even during the time of Luke Skywalker's new Jedi Order. Nihilus spoke an indecipherable language that isn't subtitled in the game. It was said to cause intense pain, though the Jedi and Sith could understand it. The only time we ever see his speech translated is in A comic, and it looks like a winding spot.
0: The human who would become Darth Nihilus was born in an unknown year on an unknown world. See, no backstory. Nothing is known of Nihilus before the Battle of Malachor V, except that he lost everything in the Mandalorian Wars, with all his friends and family being killed, which sapped his will to live. We don't know to what extent, if any, he participated in the fighting, though it is implied that he was a Jedi who followed Revan into the Mandalorian Wars. Regardless of the circumstances, he was on the surface of Malachor V in 3960 when the Mass Shadow Generator was activated. Only a handful of individuals survived on the broken world, surrounded by death, fire, crumpled starships, and a gaping wound in the Force. The future Darth Nihilus stumbled forward and felt his emotional pain manifest into an aching, gnawing, all-consuming hunger. Nihilus became a wound in the Force, like Matra did, but is meant to be her antithesis in every way, which is a theme we will revisit during the Battle of Tealos IV. As he moved through the hellish landscape, Nihilus encountered another survivor of the superweapons activation and unintentionally consumed their life force. His subconscious had done this to keep Nihilus alive, but it also brought a brief respite from the memories and emotional pain he was experiencing. Nihilus found a few more survivors and glee- gleefully consumed the life force of each, but that only sated his hunger for a shorter for shorter and shorter amounts of time. The hunger in- intensified each time, though Nihilus' power over the Force had also been greatly increased, such that he was able to rip a broken starship from its orbit around Malachor 5 and took it as his own. He did that long before Starkiller did in The Force Unleashed. The ship was missing large parts of the hull, seemingly exposing it to the vacuum and radiation of space. When the Sith Civil War broke out in 3955, Nihilus drew followers and became a powerful warlord before allying with Darth Treya and Darth Sion to form the Sith Triumvirate, where he became the Lord of Hunger. Treya taught Nihilus how to harness his ability to drain life and force energies on a planetary scale. Nihilus then fed on a few unknown planets to, qui- to quiet his ever-growing hunger, and his force powers increased each time. Sometime between
1: 3954 and 3952, Darth Nihilus and Darth Sion overthrew their master, casting Darth Traya out from the Sith and blinding her to the force. Nihilus and Sion then went about purging the Jedi in different ways, though it's quite clear that Nihilus doesn't care much for Sith doctrine or philosophy and just wants to end all life in the galaxy and watch it burn. For two years, Sion led his Sith assassins against the Jedi, steadily decreasing their numbers, while Nihilus waited on the edges of known space for the chance to feed. At some point, Nihilus saw that his physical body was wasting away as a result of his continued use of the dark side, and he determined to cheat death. Thus, Nihilus discarded his body and encased his spear within his mask and armor, using the force to handle his red lightsaber and use force powers. Nihilus also built a square Sith holocron that contained part of his essence around this time. In 3952, Nihilus finally struck at the Jedi in what may be the most singularly impressive use of the Force in all of Star Wars. Jedi Master Atris leaked information about a large gathering of Jedi at the Conclave at Qatar in an attempt to lure the Sith into a trap, but she was no match for Nihilus. The Ravager dropped out of hyperspace just as the conclave was set to begin, and Darth Nihilus reached out into the Force, speaking a single word and consuming all life on Qatar. Later, Nihilus walked to the surface of Qatar to look upon his works, finding the sole survivor, a Miraluka named Visas Mar, and taking her to the Ravager to recover. The planet that once teemed with Flora and Fauna in the Inherently Force-sensitive Miraluka was now a barren husk devoid of life and the Force. Every Jedi on the planet died, including Masters Vandar To'Kare, Dorak, and Tsar Lustin. Though those three are the only ones named, there could have been anywhere from 30 to 90 Jedi, and they were all gone. For a list of those who likely perished on guitar, take a listen to Episode 6.0, Come One, Come All to This Tragic Affair. Days later, Nihilus showed Mar his vision of the galaxy, an act which tore holes in her vestigial eye sockets. The vision turned Mar, and she became Nihilus's apprentice.
0: Now, this is one of those interesting anachronisms in Star Wars, because he uh, he flies in the face of the idea that uh, only the Jedi can uh, can. Can have force ghosts, I mean, you know, cherry had a technical body, but you know, anyway, character profile visus mar born in thirty nine seventy six on the miraluka colony world guitar visus mar's life is a mystery until thirty nine fifty two Merca, as you are no doubt aware are born without eyes but being an inherently Force-sensitive species, they are taught to see using a unique Force ability known as Force Sight it allows them to perceive the world as the Force flows in and around everything if you've ever wondered the Mariluka have vestigial eye sockets without eyeballs, and we know this because of Mar's appearance in the KOTOR prequel comic KOTOR 2 prequel comic Unseen Unheard Meryl were normally uncomfortable around objects or beings untouched by the Force, so the, sho- the shock of Darth Nihilus ripping the life and Force from every living being on the planet overcame Visus. She not only saw the Force being drained, but experienced it as all her connections to the world were severed in an instant. The pain overwhelmed Visus, left her unconscious, and nearly killed her. She was saved by Darth Nihilus, who came upon her as he walked and admired the tomb world of his own creation. It is unclear if Marge's survival was a conscious decision by Nihilus as he sought an apprentice or just a happy accident, but he transported her to the Ravager and healed her wounds. When Visa Smar awoke a few days later, Darth Nihilus was the only other being on the Ravager, and she approached him to learn why she was spared. The Dark Lord gave her a Force vision, showing her the world as... Luka could never see it He showed her all the beings in the galaxy Who had no connection to the force um, Who were all disconnected from one another And everything else in the galaxy Nihilus wanted to consume all life in the galaxy To silence the noise and chaos Brought on by the teeming masses As his name would suggest Darth Nihilus believed that death was the sole purpose in life And his power was a means to that end he manipulated Visus, and she became his shadow hand. She might have been a full Sith apprentice, but since Nihilus didn't really care for Sith teachings, that's probably unlikely. The vision hobble, hobbled Mars' foresight and carved out her vestigial eye sockets. The that that's twice we've said that in this in this episode. That. That's amazing writing. Good job, me. The vision also calls Nihilus and Visus Mar to develop an intense force bond that made both more powerful but could also make them weaker. I mean,
1: there's just something incredibly visceral about that phrase. I think it warrants repeating. Out to vestigial eye sockets is a hell of a line. Yeah. (laughs) So, location profile The Ravager a Centurion-class battlecruiser. The Ravager was built in an unknown year and served as part of the Republic fleet during the Mandalorian Wars. We don't know how many battles the ship was involved in during the war, but it most certainly fought in the Battle of Malachor V in 3960. Like thousands of other ships, the Ravager was caught in the blast radius of the mass shadow generator and crumpled, killing everyone on board. The ship was one of many that fell into orbit around Malachor V instead of being crushed into the planet's surface like so many others. As Darth Nihilus walked the surface of the world and consumed the life energies of other scattered survivors, he needed a way off the planet. Finding his power in the force greatly increased, he decided to borrow a ship from the crumpled wrecks surrounding Malachor V. It's not like the ship's old crew was using it any longer. The future Darth Nihilus apparently smoothed out the ship's scrunched-up frame, though it wasn't made whole. The Ravager was not, technically speaking, spaceworthy, as it was missing large sections of the hull that exposed infrastructure where the plating had been shot or ripped off. Visas Mar was given quarters that contained a large cabin with an adjacent circular meditation room that seemed to have been created for that specific purpose. Maybe Nihilus used it prior to taking on an apprentice or made it for her, we don't know. Visas hated it and called it her cell. Particle shields contained a small amount of atmosphere and kept the ship pressurized, but outside of that, it lacked amenities of any kind. Despite only being half a ship, the Ravager was formidable in battle with numerous weapon systems. The ship was held together solely by Nihilus' power and the Force, but it was controlled By the Dark Lords, many half-dead slaves. They had grey, decaying flesh and were incapable of doing anything other than operate the Ravager. Everything on the ship slowly dies while Nihilus hungers, as the ship is tied to Nihilus' connection to the Force. This doesn't seem to apply to Avisa's She showed no physical symptoms of living on the ship for around a year. Interestingly, or perhaps not, there are a total of four ships called the Ravager in Star Wars,
0: three in Legends, and one in the canon. Location profile, Nar Shaddaa. Located in the YouTube system, that's Y apostrophe T-O-U-B, Nar Shadda is the largest moon of now the adopted homeworld of the Huts. Me. Since the YouTube, YouTube system was named far earlier, a fun but completely unsubstantiated conspiracy theory would be that YouTube took the name from this system. Narshadah, aka the Smuggler's Moon, is both the entertainment and financial hub of Hut Space. While the city covers the entire moon, it's unlike Coruscant or Terrace in that it doesn't have firmly delineated levels so much as thousands of incredibly tall buildings with other smaller buildings built randomly or literally overshadowed. In KOTOR 2, there are a few times when you can look up and see the buildings far taller than the than where the exile is Which is a rarity in Star Wars As we usually see the top level It also portrays scale very well For once in the history of Star Wars Nal Hutta became The Hut homeworld in 15,000 BBY After the Hutt cataclysms Decimated their homeworld Varl by 14,500, Narshadah was fully covered in city and it stood as a rival to Coruscant for almost 11,000 years until trade lanes shifted drastically just before 4,000 BBY and the Republic stopped using the moon. Narshadah had always had criminal elements, but after the Republic abandoned it, abandoned it crime and villainy overtook every part of the moon. From the Undercity to the tallest towers, narshda was divided into various sectors, such as the Corellia Sector, uh, which held a number of bars, and the Red Sector, which was their version of a red-light district. This means that it's the YouTube Red Sector, which is funny to me. In 3952, following the massacre at Qatar, Jedi Master Zez went to Nar Shaddaa to hide after the remaining Jedi disbanded and went underground. He could hide on Nar Shaddaa because the sheer amount of life on the planet made it almost impossible to, to discern individual Force signatures. Visas Mar would let her later remark, quote, Never have I been to a place so alive with the force, yet so dead to it, end quote. Nar refugee sectors is one of the most crowded in the galaxy, and they are tightly monitored by the exchange. The entire moon is horribly polluted, and some sectors have seemingly bottomless pits that are tens of thousands of stories deep. <laughs> Finally,
1: it's time to explore Nar Shaddai. The ship lands on a docking platform that's so high off the ground, we cannot see the bottom. We aren't on the top level as buildings rise far above the Ebon Hawk, but it will have to do. Also, Atten got us in with a smooth landing this time. Right now, we have two options, exit the ship and have a look around, or another cutscene, this time featuring a dozen characters, only two of whom are really important. This place is lousy with cutscenes, and this is the first one that doesn't at least feel somewhat useful, at least not yet. In a nondescript room, we see numerous bounty hunters gathering around a circular black droid that projects a picture of a bearded mob boss. This is the mafioso mafioso Goto that put the bounty on Surik's head and runs the Exchange Crime Syndicate. Around the projection, we see three Gant, two Twi'lek, one Duro, one Wookiee, and three HK-50 assassination droids. Goto informs his cadre of Bounty Hunters that a Jedi walks Nar Shaddaa and she is not to be harassed or targeted in any way. The Bounty Hunters are outraged and begin bickering and threatening, but they are apparently on Goto's ship and it's neutral ground for Bounty Hunters. The assembled group eventually agrees to the truce, though it will likely be broken at the first opportunity. The cutscene ends with the Bounty Hunters arguing and Goto leaving them to it. Back at the Ibanhawk, Sirik decides to take Kraya and Bowder as companions and sets off to explore, but we won't get very far because someone's always got to hassle us about docking. This time, it's a Toydarian named Kello. You probably remember the Toydarian Watu from The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Well, since that character was such a great idea, we've got Quoro, a Toydarian with a... Thick, surly, jersey accent, who's very annoyed we parked the ship there. There's a dock for the Red Eclipse. That's a dock for the Red Eclipse crime syndicate, and they're going to be met, which is fine by Zurich because she needs to become notorious to get the attention of the exchange. Before we go, we try a Jedi mind trick on Quarrow, and he fakes falling for it before saying Toydarians can't be persuaded by the Force, just like Watto. If you max out the Exile's wisdom stats and the highest Force Persuasion level, Quello can be really fooled by the mind trick. Quello, though. No.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess uh, uh, pe- people are uh, beings that don't have uh, a lot of willpower in those... Uh, ...in those species can be fooled. I, I don't know. It's it's Star Wars. It's all inconsistencies. Around the next corner, a bunch of exchange goons... ...are attacking a random refugee for standing around. The refugee begs for help... ...and Surik is only too happy to, to oblige... ...taking out the thugs. Then we come to a seemingly small... ...but now infamous interaction. A hungry beggar asks Surik to spare five credits... ...which she does. No big deal, right? Obviously, a small handful of credits is not going to fix this poor man's material circumstances, but sometimes small mercies are the best. Who in their right mind would care, much less have an issue with helping a poor refugee get some food or get loaded and ignore their problems for at least a little while? Oh, but we've underestimated Kreia, her objectivist Randian personal politics, and her severe misunderstanding of causation. Mitra Syriac's teacher in the New Way new teacher in the ways of the forest launches into a tirade about the pointlessness of individual charity and small acts of kindness. Kraya says that the gesture will not help because he didn't work to earn the money. So we know that Protestant work ethic is alive and well in the galaxy far, far away. The XL argues that a small kindness can give hope and help someone survive. But Kraya argues that survival may not be advantageous because he might do a greater evil tomorrow. That's not how causation works, Kraya. You aren't responsible for a person's actions if you aid or save them. Now You might regret it, but that's a different thing than legal or even moral causation. But Kraya will not be deterred by silly things like compassion or basic decency. Instead, she begins narrating the cutscene of a beggar being killed for the five credits Sir gave him. In Cray's estimation, Surik simply made him a target. Her kindness got him killed. She sums up her position by saying, we live in a society. Okay, she doesn't say that, but she might as well because the whole point was to make a cringe-worthy surface-level assessment of situation without context or analysis. Cray is easily one of the most interesting characters in the history of Star Wars, but her moral relativism means she's also the equivalent of a historian or philosopher who is too in love with David Hume, and if you don't know who David Hume is, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> Just save yourself. In my opinion. <laughs>
1: It's good, it's good, it's good. I'm just waiting for us to stumble back into material analysis.
0: Oh, dear. Oh. Yes. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it, it would be great. Like, it, I would love to be able, I really would love to be able to do material analysis. I, I mean, I, me and Kelsey both would, I think. Um, But it's just, we just don't know. There's just so many things we don't know. Like, half of these places use different systems of credits and, like, Some of them, some of them live in like, uh, in like, um, like feudal systems. Some of them live in monarch, in monarchies. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's so, it's so difficult to do. I wouldn't even know where to start. It's great. It's definitely a, a fun Twitter game. Whenever I stumble into
1: what if it was the old Republic was an anti regime. Anyway, um, Anyway, (laughs) we are the extent of our material analysis right here is that uh, Kraya has a weird, weird ethic and doesn't understand how ultimately immaterial five credits are in the scheme of things. Um, So, despite all this, we still want to be in Kraya's good graces so that she will tell us more secrets from her past. People get frustrated because Krya takes utterly nonsensical positions and then gets mad at the Exile for being reasonable, but all you have to do to gain influence is tell her you'll think on her words. Another beggar awaits and it's time to show what we've learned about appeasing Krya. The guy asks for change and Surak agrees, but on condition that the guy provides some info about any Jedi Masters wandering around. Predictably, the beggar hadn't seen anything like that, but he does talk about the Jedi Civil War and how the Jedi destroyed many worlds, sending millions of refugees to Nar Shaddaa and elsewhere. The Jedi exile counters it was the Sith who did that, but to normal galactic citizens, that's a distinction without a difference. The beggar says Jedi and Sith are just two names for the same thing, besides, quote, uh, besides, quote, it's difficult to tell in a crossfire if the Sith were led by a Jedi, end quote a damning indictment of the Jedi high-mindedness about their purpose and value and virtue. This is another recurring theme, but citizens have a difficult time telling between Jedi and Sith it's just a bunch of super-powered beings fighting a holy war. It's way above their pay grade. Mitra thanked the beggar and departed, but then a brief cutscene occurs showing the beggar passing out. Information along to a rather attractive red-headed bounty hunter. Her name is Mira, and she is a companion, but we don't know that yet. With that over, Surik and her companions move into the main hub of the refugee sector on Narshada. The large square area leads to the entertainment district, the Pazak Den, the Swoop Track, the main docks, and the refugee tenements. In the center of the hub is a seemingly bottomless pit with a single flimsy handrail for safety. We're going to leave it here because, frankly, if we go much further, we'll get lost in Nar Shana, and this episode will be three hours long. As you might have guessed, Narshana is massive and it's likely going to take us all of the next episode to complete, but we promise to find a more narratively satisfying conclusion and our theme to end the show next time other than just adding OSHA to the list of things Star Wars needs besides um, abolition and seatbelt loss. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so we keep coming back to this, these OSHA problems it's
1: So of much scary. of it There is So much of it Really, really Return of the Jedi Is a story about insufficient OSHA regulations um, yeah. So Thank you for listening to this episode Of A People's History of the Old Republic Next episode We will continue our exploration Of the hive of scum and villainy Known as Nar Shaddaa We'll meet a Jedi Master who looks like Dietrich Bader's character in the movie Office Space, and we'll try to secure some fuel for Citadel Station from a hut crime lord. Please rate, comment, and subscribe to Fotor on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at FotorPod or email us at FotorPodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments, and we will answer them on the show. I'm at KD on Twitter.
0: I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you.